1: It appears Chinese intelligence services have been exploiting a vulnerability in SolarWinds to steal data from a U.S. government payroll system. The presumed Russian intrusion into SolarWinds may have been going on for nine months or more. Three new SolarWinds vulnerabilities are disclosed and patched. Amnesty accuses South Sudan of abusing intercept tools. BEC Compromise is involved in gift card scams. Joe Kerrigan has thoughts on opt in privacy policies. Our guest is Dale Ludwig from Cherry on USB attacks and hardware security. And Carters steal from other Carters. From the Cyberwire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. Reuters reports that the FBI's investigation of the SolarWinds supply chain attack is looking into evidence that Chinese threat actors successfully exploited a vulnerability in the company's software to compromise the National Finance Center, a payroll system operated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The Department of Agriculture's reaction to the story is ambiguous. The Agriculture Department emailed Reuters to say that USDA has notified all customers, including individuals and organizations, whose data has been affected by the SolarWinds Orion Code compromise. But a second departmental spokesman said after the story broke that there was no data breach related to solar winds at USDA, but offered no further clarification. The vulnerability the Chinese threat actors are believed to have exploited is said to be different from the one used by UNC-2452 the threat actor widely believed to be a Russian intelligence service. Reuters' anonymous sources told them that the campaign used tools and infrastructure that had been previously deployed by state-backed Chinese cyber spies. As the Washington Post observes, many had suspected that another group was also actively exploiting solar winds, but Reuters' report is the first to suggest that this second threat actor was connected to the Chinese government. The Chinese Foreign Ministry denied any involvement, observing first, and in fairness correctly, that attribution is a complex technical issue. The ministry then moved on to unlikely insistence on the usual pieties. China resolutely opposes and combats any form of cyber attacks and cyber theft. It's doubtful that any government on the planet, even, say, the Holy See or San Marino, resolutely opposes any form of cyber-attack unless cyber-attack is construed so narrowly as to rule out any form of interception, surveillance, or retaliation. If any pure cyber-pacifists are running any government, it's doubtful that government is in Beijing. Some have said that major cyber-attacks are often more like riots than bank jobs, with multiple actors going after the same targets for their own reasons. Reuters quotes former U.S. Chief Information Security Officer, retired Air Force General Gregory Toohill, who thinks it's not that unusual for more than one group to hit the same product. He prefers the racing metaphor to the criminal one. Quote, it wouldn't be the first time we've seen a nation state actor surfing in behind someone else. It's like drafting in NASCAR, Toohill said. It's worth noting that while the National Finance Center is housed in the Department of Agriculture, its responsibilities aren't confined there. The NFC also handles payroll for other government agencies. Some of the more interesting ones from the point of view of national security are the FBI, the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Treasury Department. The NFC claims on its website to payroll more than 600,000 employees. It also provides customizable and flexible financial management services and integrated shared service solutions. The data held by the NFC would include social security numbers, phone numbers, personal email addresses and banking information, and also associations between individual employees and their agencies. Such information is useful for building human target dossiers of individuals of interest And Chinese services have shown an appetite for such sweeping collection in the past, against the U.S., most notably in the Office of Personnel Management breach of 2015. According to the Wall Street Journal, SolarWinds is still investigating to see how the attackers, the presumed Russians in particular, gained access to the company's networks. One of the going theories is that they got in by compromising SolarWinds' Microsoft 365 accounts. They appear to have compromised one of the company's Office 365 accounts in December of 2019 and then were able to pivot into others. All told, they were probably lurking, as the journal puts it, in SolarWinds' email systems for nine months or more. There have been other discoveries related to SolarWinds. Security firm Trustwave has identified three additional vulnerabilities in SolarWinds' products, The researchers say the vulnerabilities are severe and should be addressed as soon as possible, but that they've seen no evidence of exploitation in the wild. Two of the vulnerabilities were found in the Orion platform. The third was discovered in SolarWinds' Servview FTP for Windows. SolarWinds has patched all three of these and done so in what Trustwave calls a very timely manner. The researchers have not released proof-of-concept code for exploits because they don't wish to give threat actors a head start on patching. But if you're a SolarWinds user, don't delay in applying the patches. Trustwave will release proof-of-concept next week on February 9th. Amnesty International reports that the government of South Sudan obtained variant systems communications intercept tools between 2015 and 2017, According to Amnesty's report, South Sudan's National Security Service has been abusing the technology to keep journalists, critics, and dissidents under surveillance. Knox Limited contacted us today to say that they'd reached an agreement with security firm ESET to address the selective exploitation of Knox's Big Knox Android emulator, ESET found and disclosed. That exploitation was used in what appears to have been a cyber-espionage campaign. Knox and ESET intend to work together on the security issue and will provide further information as it becomes available. Microsoft warns of a spike in business email compromise scams soliciting gift cards said to be intended for K-12 teachers. If you get an email from some elephant in your organization asking you to go ahead and buy a gift card for a teacher online, just put your hands in your pockets and walk on by, virtually, If you'd like to express your appreciation to a teacher with a gift card, we suggest going to the store and buying one and then leaving it on the teacher's desk. An Apple gift card would be a nice gesture toward tradition. And finally, Bleeping Computer reports that criminals are stealing pay card data from other criminals who skimmed them using Magento. It's a piggyback skimmer that quietly rides on top of Magento instances. There's no honor among thieves. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Most of the discussion around cybersecurity these days is focused around software and services, which makes sense. But what about the actual physical devices we use every day to interact with our computers? And in particular, what about devices that find themselves in challenging environments, industrial or medical? Dale Ludwig is Business Development Manager at Cherry Americas, a global provider of these types of devices, and he joins us today. Dale, welcome to the Cyberwire.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So let's start off with just some some descriptive stuff here. I mean, when we're talking about the security issues of these devices that we use every day, these input devices, uh, which is right in the center of your wheelhouse, what are some of the things that you all are concerned with on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, so some of the markets that we serve include the government, enterprise, healthcare, retail, even schools, and and now home office. And Obviously, with COVID, we're seeing a massive, massive change uh, to a, a really a digital transformation of these markets from the shift to work or remote school uh, atmosphere that we're now in. So unfortunately, this trans- transformation opens up new avenues for cyber threats and expands the attack service.
1: So when it comes to something you know like a keyboard, which I think is something most of us interact with every day, but probably don't put a whole lot of thought into uh, the security aspects of it, what's the the spectrum of of uh, things that are available to help secure that keyboard computer interface?
2: Yeah, so one of the one of the worst things that you know persists in this environment is access to the USB port on your computer. And, you know, with roughly three billion <laughs> USB devices shipped every year, um, and really the beauty and uh, efficiency of the USB device is that you can connect anything to it and it'll, you expect it to function. But unfortunately, there's a cost to that, that ability to con- connect any device, but USB gives some vulnerabilities because of that. Um, it's an ability to verify the devices are what they claim to be. Um, So you have the possibility for USB devices to change their type or introduce additional uh, sub-devices while being plugged in, and they can create software attacks through malware, which then you've got key loggers such as a rubber ducky or a bad USB, these types of devices which reprogram uh, your USB device and really cause it to act as a human interface device or a keyboard. And so we, our, our device goes after that channel and really shuts that access point down.
1: Now, what about devices that find themselves in, in more challenging environments than, say, your typical office environment or your, your home office? You know, things that that are in industrial uh, situations, things that are in medical situations. These are the devices that you all provide as well. Are, are there specific security issues when it comes to putting devices like that in those environments?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and both of the features on this keyboard address those. And You know, with HIPAA requirements and in medical manufacturing facilities, there are issues about who do you want to operate a piece of machinery. So obviously controlling access to applications or even a machine is important. So we incorporate contact and contactless readers into this keyboard and then back that up with the encryption using the TLS protocol.
1: All right. Well, Dale Ludwig is business development manager at Cherry Americas. Dale, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Appreciate the time. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program. With the largest network of trust centers... That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. You know, over on Hacking Humans, we, we often talk about uh, privacy issues and how folks can best protect themselves. This article from the Wall Street Journal I found interesting. It's, uh, it's titled, Apple and Facebook Trade Barbs Over Privacy-Focused Business Models. What's going on here, Joe?
0: So, Apple has said that coming this spring, they are going to allow their users to decide whether or not they will share their, uh, something called their a- advertising identifier. So... Mm-hmm. They're actually going to make this what we have been asking for as privacy advocates for decades. They're going to make this an opt-in thing. Right. So in other words, everybody always says, well, we make it so you can opt out. And nobody, of course, opts out. But Apple is changing the (laughs) paradigm here. They're saying you're going to have to opt in in order to share your advertising identifier with uh, companies like Facebook.
1: Yeah. So the default position will be to not be tracked. Correct.
0: Correct. And And that's fantastic right? Right. Um, of course this has stuck in the crawl of, uh, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Zuckerberg has sought to cast this, this move as a means for Apple to use its platform, to put Facebook at a disadvantage. And he says that, uh, Apple's iMessage service is pre-installed on every phone and complained that Apple uses these tools to put itself at the center of its user's experience. Hmm. Um, I want to tell Mark Zuckerberg something uh, because <laughs> I know listening. he listens to every word I say and he hangs on every word I say. I'm uh, sure. Yes, of course he does, That is why people Joe. buy Apple products, Mark. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. They like the Apple experience and Apple puts the user experience at the center of everything they develop. They do a really right. good job of that. As much as I don't like Apple and I, I don't use Apple, they're... Focus is the user, and it always has been, at least since they started developing uh, Macintoshes. Um, right. It is remarkable to me. It looks to me like he's trying to make a comparison here between iMessage and the old Internet Explorer monopoly com- complaints from years ago that Microsoft yeah. packages Internet Explorer with every operating system they sell. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's going to fly either, because not only does uh, Apple offer iMessage, but you can still install other apps on your phone and use those as well. So it's it's not really a a monopoly. There is no barrier to entry.
1: Um, Well, who do you who do you think needs each other more? In other words, does if if it came down to, you know, nuclear options from either company, suppose, you know, if if Apple were to say, uh, hey, Facebook, your app can't be in our app store anymore, or Facebook were to say, hey, Apple, you know, if you don't if you don't ease up on this, we're going to pull our app from the app store. Who do you think has the upper hand?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. I think that Apple has the upper hand here, because the question is, uh, that question is, who's going to leave whom, right? The user yeah. from the user perspective, who who's going to leave? Now you're an Apple user, right? I am. I am indeed. Um, and but you're not a Facebook user, are you?
1: I am not. No.
0: no I, I, <laughs> so it, this is not going to have any impact on you. The way yeah. I see this going is is, is it's going to go one of two ways. Either. Facebook is going to say, okay, we're going to have to adapt to this and we're going to have to target ads based on information that we collect from our apps only. Uh, Because rest assured, Facebook is going to continue to collect the information about everything you do on every app they own. Uh, On Facebook, on WhatsApp, on Instagram, that's Mm -hmm. all going to be collected and uh, correlated And there's not much that Apple can do about that. All they're going to lose is the insights into everything else outside of their ecosystem that, that the user does that Apple would normally inform them about. So they can either adapt to that situation or they can say to the Apple, uh, user community in order for you to continue using our services, you must opt in to share your advertising ID with us, or you can't use our services. Now, that is not outside the realm of, of possibility with Facebook. We just saw them do that with WhatsApp um, a couple a couple of weeks ago, where right. they said, and
1: they backed off. Yeah, they backed off because of, because of so many people fled to other apps like Signal.
0: Right. Well, good. And people should stay on apps like Signal and not use yeah. not use WhatsApp simply because it is a Facebook property. Uh, but yeah, Facebook had to back down from that. But I, I can see them doing that and. Even if they don't, even if they back down again, they're probably still going to get some people who just go ahead and do it. I think that what would happen there is that this is this is a time, uh, an opportunity, a market opportunity for someone to start up a new social networking site that is uh, to replace Facebook that doesn't target users as much. And, and since this privacy discussion has come to the forefront. Uh, I think I think it's a, a good time for someone to strike while the iron's hot. Um, I'm not going to invest any money in it, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> other listeners are welcome to do that.
1: You stand by your convictions right. as long as it doesn't cost you anything. That's right.
0: A <laughs> uh, couple interesting points from this article. Uh, a tap research survey found that 85% of respondents said they wouldn't allow apps to track them if given a choice. So chances yeah. are that Facebook is really looking at a hit here in, in how they target ads. I do want to. I do want to also say that you know Apple's not the golden boy here. Tim Cook is using the uh, the events of January sixth as a touchstone for for this privacy practice, and he's saying that uh, we shouldn't prioritize algorithms that advance conspiracy theories over privacy. And you know, I, I don't agree with that tactic, Tim. I don't think you need to highlight this specific event in order to advance your agenda here. You should just have this agenda as part of your uh, as part of your privacy policy. And in fact. Apple has been planning on doing this for a long time. In fact, they were originally planning on giving users the option to opt in or making it an opt-in system back in fall of last year, but they pushed that back. Um, right. So this is not something that is a result of the events of January sixth. It's it's been in the works for a while. I don't think that you need to use that. I think that's a little bit of demagoguing on the part of Tim Cook. So yeah, you know, I, I I say take what he says as the reasoning for a grain of salt with a grain of salt, but. I think there are plenty of perfectly good and legitimate reasons to do this just because.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, well, the article is in the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, Apple Facebook Trade Barbs Over Privacy-Focused Business Models, written by Tim Higgins. Uh, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Nothing runs like a deer. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. The Cyberwire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Karu Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, Don Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.